material, so pass it on to you. Okay. I have a list of some things that doctors um, said, experiences that they had. And um, one of them was that a doctor was went in to check on a woman in the hospital, and he said, so how was your breakfast this morning? And she said, well, it was very good, except the, for the Kentucky jelly. I, I can't seem to get used to that taste. And then I asked to see the jelly, and she produced a foil packet of KY jelly. Oh, it's cutting in and out. Yeah. Anything to do, we're so electronically. Uh, you didn't get my joke. I got it. I got it. Okay, I don't know why it's coming. We'll try. Parents and teachers work very hard to teach their little children concepts that they can grasp when they're young. You would never teach physics to a toddler or engineering to a three-year-old. Their minds simply are not able to comprehend such truths because they're limited in their understanding. And so it is for us as adults regarding truths that are difficult in Scripture. We have finite minds that have been impacted very negatively by the fall. Therefore, we are limited in our comprehension when it comes to fully understanding things like the Trinity, one God, three persons, or how Jesus could be God and become a human and grow in the womb of a young girl. Or how human responsibility and the doctrine of God's election work perfectly together. And just as a child has limitations to grasp difficult concepts, we realize that there are truths about God that we will never fully get this side of heaven. What's important is that we accept and believe the truths taught in Scripture, regardless of our inability to wrap our minds around it. We don't deny the Trinity because we can't figure it out. Nor can we deny the truth of God electing people to salvation. Scripture teaches that all men are without excuse. And we saw that in chapter 1 and 2. People are responsible to acknowledge God, to give him worship, respond to the light of creation and their own conscience. We know that's true. And yet Ephesians 2 tells us that everyone born is born dead, spiritually, in trespasses and sins. Dead people can't respond to light unless God first makes them alive to even be able to respond. So this very challenging doctrine is not something that is to be denied or redefined in order to satisfy our puny minds. We don't have to figure it out, but we do have to surrender our own wills to a perfectly good and holy God who makes no mistakes. We are called to trust him and to believe his words. And when, you know, when we get to heaven, this will all be as simple as ABC. But for now, we teach and believe what scripture says, and we trust him regardless of our feeble attempts to grasp the secret things that really belong to God. So as Paul begins these next three chapters, and I'm, it's unfortunate that we're breaking in the middle of these three chapters for Christmas, but that's how it goes. Because they're a unit together, where he's defending the righteousness of God. For the Jewish believers who are reading this letter, he knew they would be wondering, okay, well what about all the promises God made to the Jewish people throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures? The nation as a whole had rejected their own Messiah. The Apostle Paul was thought by them, the Jewish people, to be a traitor to his own people. And he continued to bring the message of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah 
to the Gentile world. So Paul takes three chapters to explain, you know what, God is not through with Israel. Israel is Israel. Israel is not the church. And he starts this section by sharing his deep, passionate love for his kinsmen, Israel. He will then turn to Israel's past history to clarify and to prove that God is absolutely righteous and has always dealt this way in his dealings with Israel. So we begin with the past history of the nation of Israel. And we see, first of all, Paul's great passion and love. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul did not want to be misunderstood as he spoke about Israel and their unbelief. He was greatly grieved over their spiritual condition and lostness. He had a broken heart. And in this compelling state of grief, he states in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from God, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying that he had such a great love for his people that he was willing, if it were possible, to go to hell if that meant they would go to heaven. Of course, this is impossible, but it was the only way God, uh, Paul could think of to express his compassion and love for his people. He meant what he said. He meant it. He calls on Christ and the Holy Spirit as his witness. What an amazing passion and love Paul had for lost sinners. We might be willing to die for someone we love very much, but willing to spend eternity in hell for someone? This was Paul's heart for Israel. With all of the privileges God had given this nation as a people, they had rejected their own Messiah. And now Paul's going to reflect on the special benefits that they were given. In verses 4 and 5 we read, They were adopted as sons. Not everyone in the nation, but the people as a whole, have been given a special relationship to God. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God adopted the nation of Israel and showed his special favor to them. Israel was given the glory as well. That speaks of his visible presence, whether it was leading them in the wilderness by a pillar of fire and a cloud, or his Shekinah glory coming forth in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. They had the very presence of God to lead them, protect them, and were comforted by them. Sorry this keeps cutting out. Anyways, they were also given the covenants. These are the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. God promised to do certain things for the people yeah. of Israel. They also had the giving of the law. I'm just going to tilt it down a little bit. Okay. They also had the giving of the law. God gave his spe uh, special, specific legal code to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. You know, we have some of those laws in our own country, but they were originally given to the people of Israel by God. The temple service was another privilege Israel had as they served God in the temple and ultimately uh, were involved in the temple worship after tabernacle into the temple time. The promise God gave to the nation of Israel declared that there was a promised Messiah coming through their uh, line, a Jewish king that all the nations of the world would be blessed by. The fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given only to Israel. Only Jewish people can claim to be their ancestors. 
the Messiah has come from the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish, uh, yet God was yet he was God in flesh. And Paul goes on to say, "Who is overall God blessed forever?" Amen. So there's been no other nation on earth blessed as Israel has been blessed. Yet in spite of all of this, the nation as a whole rejected their own promised Messiah. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And it broke Paul's heart. And it should break our hearts as well. Having made very clear his deep love and passion for the nation, now he's going to defend the righteousness of God uh, and how he has dealt with Israel and how he's always dealt with Israel. We see this in the explanation of who is true Israel, verses 6 through 13. Peter said about Paul's letter that there's things that are hard to understand. Well, here's one of those things hard to understand and grasp. Theologians, theologians call it the doctrine of election. The truth, this truth declares that God chooses to save some people and passes over others. The initial reaction of most people is, that's not fair. Paul is going to go into great depth of explanation that God is always righteous and he was always righteous in how he dealt with the nation of Israel. He is going to point out to all that God sovereignly chose some Jewish people for salvation and this truth does not destroy the fact that God is righteous. Paul first presents the principle of election by making a distinction between physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Paul will il illustrate election from Israel's past history, proving that God is just and always has been just in his doings. So we see the truth of election implied at verse 6. Sorry, I got out of order. Um, the truth is implied. Verse 6 reads, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The Jewish believer had to be wondering about all the promises God gave to us, to the nation of Israel. Had they failed? This word failed has the idea of a ship going off course to crash into the rocks. So had the promises of God's word to Israel gone off course because the nation rejected their own Messiah? Can puny man actually frustrate God's plan? <coughs> Has God thrown his hands up in the air because he can't get his own people to believe in him? What is at stake is the answer to this question and whether the scripture promises are trustworthy. And you know, if they're not trustworthy and true for Israel, they are not trustworthy and true for the church. There are countless promises to Israel about their future kingdom, a millennial kingdom, having a new heart of flesh, not of stone. But they rejected their own Messiah but has God's word failed? Absolutely not, Paul says. He explains by making the point that just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not make you a recipient automatically of God's promises to Israel because they were made to spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the recipients of all of those promises. From God's perspective, there are two kinds of Jewish people, physical and spiritual. 
Physical Jews are biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A person born into a Jewish family is Jewish. Whether they believe in God, deny him, atheist, whatever. They're just born into a Jewish family, and so they are Jewish. However, spiritual Jews are not only biological descendants of Abraham and Isaac, but they are spiritual descendants because they have the same faith as their forefathers. Remember, we studied the faith of Abraham, declared righteous. She put it down. Yeah, it's... It's just, yeah. I think it has to go back up again. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm electronics. The Lord doesn't, Satan rather, doesn't want you to hear what I'm saying. <laughs> so you have to make a greater effort to listen. I'm sorry about this uh, poor quality of my game. Anyway, spiritual Jews are those who are not only biological, but have the same faith as Abraham. Paul's trying to make it clear that the promises of salvation that God made to Israel will one day be fulfilled, not for those who are simply born into the Jewish line, but for those who are spiritual Jews. A similar example is in Christianity today. How many people would fill out a form and put, yeah, I'm a Christian on a paper? I mean, how many people say, yeah, that's me, but they're not Christians. They're in the general arena of Christendom and think they are in their religion, but they do not have a relationship with Christ. The promises God made to his church are only fulfilled to those who are his true Christians, true followers. Those who have repented of their sin, turned from their sin, trusted God, became a man, and died the death on the cross in order to make the payment for our own personal sin. And so it is that not all Israel will experience the promises made to the nation, but only spiritual Israel. Being born into a Christian home does not make anybody a Christian. Being born physically into a Jewish home doesn't make you automatically a recipient of God's promises to the nation of Israel. The promise God made to Israel, they were intended for individual Jews within the nation who were true believers. And that group of believers is known as the remnant. You know, there's always been a remnant. You study the book the Old Testament, and they're always going off into idolatry as a whole, the nation, but there always was a group who followed the Lord. Always been a remnant of Jewish people who were true believers, like their father Abraham. So we see true Israel is not the nation as a whole, but a few chosen within that nation. I remind you, Jesus told the religious leaders of his day that Abraham wasn't your father. Your father is Satan. And ooh, that enraged them because they were physical descendants, but they did not have the faith of their father, Abraham. So Paul's first point then is to show from the Old Testament scriptures the truth that there is an elect within national Israel. So that brings us to the illustration that proves election in verses 7 through 13. Paul quotes from Genesis 21. As he sets out to prove the truth that God's sovereign choice and election is seen in how he chose Isaac and Jacob. Paul goes back to the very start of the nation of Israel, showing that God always dealt with the nation based on election. Ishmael was also Abraham's son, but God chose Isaac to be the line that the blessing would come through. Ishmael was the result of a human effort and attempts to help God out. Isaac was the result of divine fulfillment. God chose to bless Isaac over Ishmael. 
This pattern of election continues today. Not every physical descendant of Abraham has been elected by God for the blessing of salvation. One might say, well, Ishmael wasn't a pure Jew, his mother was Hagar. So Paul cites another example in verse 10 of Jacob. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. <laughs> God didn't choose Jacob over Esau because he looked ahead and saw that he'd really be a good guy. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, he was a schemer and a liar until God got a hold of his heart. God had elected him that before he was born, before he did anything. The only reason God chose Jacob over Esau, because that was his plan. God purposed this to happen, and God's plans never go off course. Even though the nation of Israel rejected their own promised Messiah, there is still a remnant that will receive all the promises fulfilled. Paul then closes his illustration with two Old Testament quotes. God had told the mother of the twins, Rebekah, that the older will serve the younger. It says in, from Genesis 25:23, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The nation that came from Esau was called Edom. This became a nation of idolaters, and they were enemies of Israel. In God's judgment, he made the Edomites serve the Israelites who came from Jacob. In verse 13, Paul goes on to quote Malachi chapter 1, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This statement was made over a thousand years after Jacob and Esau lived and died. God's not referring to personally loving Jacob and personally hating Esau. Rather, God is simply saying that at the very beginning of Israel's history, he chose Jacob over Esau before they were ever born. And at the close of the Old Testament, God summed up his attitude toward his chosen people as love and his attitude toward nations filled with idolatry as Edom, as hate. If you choose to deny the doctrine of election, then you really have to deny all of the history of Israel. True Israel is the elect remnant of Jews chosen by divine calling, not on the basis of just being born Jewish. It is through these believing Jews that God will fulfill his promises. Now we see God is a righteous God in verses 14 through 18. Paul knew some people would be questioning, is God really righteous then? They may be accusing of him. You're unfair, you're unjust, that's not right. What should we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. There is no way a holy God can be guilty of unrighteousness. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And yet for many, this doctrine, taught here in many other places of election, causes them to doubt God's fairness in choosing one person over another person. We have to have a balanced perspective of this doctrine that is seen throughout all of Scripture. Otherwise, God will be wrongly portrayed as unfair and unjust. 
So the, the appeal of scripture is seen in verses 15 through 18. Paul seeks to answer the charge against God as being unjust. And he lets scripture simply speak for itself. The difficulties we may have with this doctrine can't be resolved because we don't have a mind capable of figuring it out. This is where our intellectual limitation causes us to struggle. We are the two-year-olds who don't get physics and algebra. We don't have a capacity in our finite minds to comprehend this doctrine. Paul goes back to the book of Exodus when Moses was given the law of Moses, uh, the law rather, at Mount Sinai, and God gave it to Moses while he was up on the top of the mountain. And remember the people, what did they do? Collect all the jewelry. Oops, we heated it. Oops, there's a golden calf. This is our God who took us out of Israel, or out of the, uh, in slavery in Egypt. And so they began worshiping a golden calf. You remember the story. He comes down from the mountain. This is going on. God strikes 3,000 people dead in an instant in judgment for this wickedness. God revealed to Moses that he had found favor in his sight. <clears throat> and God, in this context, says to Moses, Moses, I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy, on whom I will have mercy. The truth was, everyone in Israel that day deserved to die. But God showed mercy and compassion on those he spared. Should anyone accuse God of being unjust because he chooses one person over another, then that same accuser has to say, that God was being unjust when he spared the nation of Israel that day. They should have all been wiped out. That would be justice. If God had ever, if God had given every person justice, the nation would have ended on that day. The fact that Israel survived is because of God electing people within that nation to show his compassion to. What we must see in this truth of election is mercy of God. Those who oppose this doctrine do so because they think it is unfair that God would select some while others are condemned by him to go to hell. And they fail to, fail to realize that the entire human race is already condemned. Everybody born is on their way to hell. All are born sinful and condemned. Remember chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person deserves judgment. God elects some out of the mass who are already condemned. In reality, instead of being unfair, election is an act of mercy. God chooses to save those who deserve to die in an act of pure mercy and compassion on his part. If you want fairness and you want justice to be done, then all people should just continue on their way to the grave where they'll be condemned to hell. There is no justice in divine election because it is based solely on mercy and compassion by God. There is no denial of human responsibility either because Paul is teaching us that apart from God's sovereign mercy, no person would ever be saved. Scripture teaches both. You're responsible to respond to the light. And God chooses those who will respond to the light. I don't get that. <laughs> but he does. So it's okay. He's trustworthy. Verse 16. So then it, it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
God's sovereign choice is not based on a person's desire or efforts to impress God or, or try to get him to choose me. Paul's already revealed a shocking reality in chapter 3. Do you remember? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. There is none righteous. No, not one. That's the state that we're in. God has not told us why he chooses some, but rather he reveals that his choices do not make him unjust. In verse 17, he points out the example of how God raised up a particular Pharaoh at the time of uh, enslavement in Egypt to all of the nation of Israel. And God raised up Moses to bring about deliverance and bring the people out. The nations all around heard about what God did for the nation of Israel and trembled. And the Jewish people to this day celebrate the Passover deliverance when God brought them out of Egypt. Was God unfair because he chose to withhold mercy from Pharaoh? Absolutely not. God is just when he chooses to show mercy to one and when he withholds mercy to another. God never violated Pharaoh's will when Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Every time Pharaoh refused God's command to let my people go, Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder and harder. And in reality, by God withholding mercy, he allowed the hardening to go on. This man was defiant, rebellious, wicked, God simply let him stay the way he was. Pharaoh received the justice he deserved rather than the mercy he did not deserve. The Jewish people of Paul's day, reading this, uh, may have responded, well, you know what? It's really not fair that God chooses some Jewish people while the majority are condemned. Many people today have this same attitude. But the reality is the doctrine of election shows God's mercy and compassion. We will never understand this mystery, but rather than be troubled by it, we ought to fall down in awe if we are a recipient of this undeserved grace, mercy, and compassion. So the theological paradox exists, and he goes on to explain this in verses 19 through 29. Everyone who opposes this doctrine has this line of thinking. If God sovereignly elects some people to be saved, then how can he hold those who are not chosen responsible for rejecting him? This is the attitude of placing blame on God for man's sin. Paul makes no attempt to settle this theological tension that exists between God being divine and sovereign and human people being responsible to believe. They both exist And just because it doesn't work in our little minds should never be a cause for us to accuse God of being unjust. In verses 20 and 21, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? God is compared to a potter working with clay. The potter has the right to make the clay into whatever he wants it to be. God has the right to do whatever he desires without disrespectful backtalk. This verse isn't here to help you have better self-esteem because you don't like your nose, hair, feet, whatever. Look to Psalm 139 for that. But anyways, this it's not about that. What it's saying is when God created Adam, he created Adam in a state of complete innocence. 
Adam chose to sin. God knew Adam would sin, but he did not create him sinful. God is not responsible, therefore, for man's sin. God, like a potter, has taken a lump of clay, which is all of sinful humanity, and by sovereign election, some of the clay is made into vessels of mercy. No one is a problem with a potter getting to choose what they're going to do with their clay. And how they're going to make a nice vase or something that's just going to be used that's not very important. If a human potter can do this, certainly Almighty God has the right to fashion sinful humanity into vessels of mercy. God made Moses and God made Pharaoh. As a quote from this book, like a potter who has the right to determine the destiny of the clay, so God has the right to determine the destiny of his creatures. And what are God's purposes? Paul makes a point that God has been patient with vessels of wrath who hate him, who mock him, who defy him. He is patient with sinners. Why didn't he wipe out Israel the moment they worshipped the golden calf? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. God is calling his chosen ones out of the lump of clay of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. Have you heard the call? No one can hide behind the doctrine of election and refuse to come to Christ by faith because they say, I don't think I'm chosen by God. Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's your responsibility. Jesus said, all that come to me, I will never cast out. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come. You are responsible to respond to the light. Don't hide behind this doctrine. You're responsible to turn from your sins by faith, to trust Christ for salvation, that he is the only way we are forgiven. You become aware of this truth, and if you are aware of it while you're sitting here right now, that is a work of God's mercy and compassion in your heart. So how do we respond? You know what? Instead of resisting the doctrine of God's sovereign choice because you can't wrap your little brain around it, and that really comes back to our pride, I have to understand everything. It's for me to believe it. Yeah, let it go. You should be grateful to God that he has chosen you to be a vessel of mercy. Do not waste your spiritual, mental, and physical strength trying to reconcile the doctrine of election and human responsibility. They are simply both presented in Scripture as facts, as truth. To focus on one and to deny the other, or to dilute one or dilute the other, becomes heresy. Let God be God. He is righteous, he is holy, he is worthy of our trust, even when we don't understand his ways. His ways are perfect, and his ways are higher than we can grasp. Paul evangelized fervently. Paul prayed diligently, probably better than any of us here. His belief in the fact that God is sovereign and in control and, and, and election didn't hinder his zeal for evangelism. It didn't hinder his prayer life. Like, well, why bother? He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. He's going to save who he's going to save. No. God has chosen evangelism as his means to bring his elect to himself. God has chosen prayer as a way to move people in circumstances. Somehow, all of that works in his sovereign plan. That's how he's chosen to do it. So, this doctrine doesn't weaken your zeal for evangelism or to pray. 
We must do the same as Paul. This doctrine keeps us humble, and it keeps God glorified. We are nothing. We have nothing to offer God but our sin. Yet, he lovingly chooses to show us mercy. He alone gets the glory for what he's done. No place for human confidence or pride. If you understand the gospel message, that is only because of the work he is doing in your heart to awaken a spiritually dead person to be able to even hear and respond to the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are God, and I thank you that we don't have to know all that you know, because then we'd be God. You're God, and we can trust you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your compassion and mercy. Lord, I pray for anyone struggling here today with these truths, that they will lay at rest that the tension that exists in Scripture is put there by you. And though we can't grasp it, you have it all perfectly meshed together, working out for your glory. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not called on you for salvation, Lord, that they wouldn't let another day go by. Today is the day to make sure they are right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.